Welcome to the Tuesday Night IBS Podcast, hosted by Jeffrey Roberts and Johanna Ruddy. The podcast connects patients and providers with information and education about the diagnosis and treatment of IBS and related diagnoses. Each month, we feature a new episode with guest experts in the field of fertility and neurogastroenterology who share the latest science and data for diagnosing and treating these conditions, as well as conversations about their impacts on the patient's quality of life. Just a reminder, the information provided in this podcast is for informational and educational use only and should never be substituted for medical advice. Always work with your doctor to diagnose and treat your IBS symptoms effectively. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Tuesday Night IBS podcast. I am Jeffrey Roberts, co-founder of Tuesday Night IBS and founder of the IBS Patient Support Group and World IBS Day. I'm delighted to share with you another great Tuesday Night IBS podcast episode. We hope you joined us for our October webinar where we featured Dr. Anthony Lembo, Kate Scarlata, and Dr. Madison Simons speaking about precision medicine and a new test for patients with IBS called InFoods IBS from Biomerica. Our experts spoke about what it is, how does it work, and what are the benefits and considerations for patients. We are digging deeper into that topic today with two key gastroenterologists that have moved the field of gastroenterology forward for patients with irritable bowel syndrome, Dr. Anthony Lembo and Dr. Lin Chang. Before we get started, let me introduce our podcast guest for today. Dr. Anthony Lembo is a global leader of functional GI disorders, also known as disorders of the gut-brain interaction. He is Director of Research for Cleveland Clinic's Digestive Diseases and Surgery Institute. Prior to this, he was the Professor of Medicine and Director of Clinical Research at Harvard Medical School's Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. His research interests are management and treatment options for irritable bowel syndrome and chronic constipation. Dr. Lembo has been involved in research and clinical studies related to many of the FDA-approved pharmacological treatments for IBS. He has published over 200 original manuscripts on this work. Dr. Lin Chang is a professor of medicine in the Division of Digestive Diseases, Department of Medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. She serves as the co-director of the Oppenheimer Center for Neurobiology of Stress and Resilience at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Dr. Chang is also program director of the UCLA Gastroenterology Fellowship Program and director of the Digestive Health and Nutrition Clinic at UCLA. Dr. Chang's clinical expertise is in functional gastrointestinal disorders, which includes IBS, chronic constipation, and functional dyspepsia. Dr. Chang is an investigator studying brain-gut interactions underlying IBS. Specifically, her work is focused on the pathophysiology of IBS related to stress, early life adversity, sex differences, and genetic factors, and gut microbiome in the treatment of IBS. We couldn't ask for better experts in the field of medicine to speak with us today. Here. Okay, so let's get started. Uh, thank you, Dr. Chang and, and Dr. Lembo, for joining us today with this discussion about InFoods. I'm going to start with Dr. Lembo and ask you you know, your testing with InFoods looked at IgG mediated response and was validated specifically for IBS. Can you explain briefly about this validation study and how it was developed specifically to IBS symptoms? Also, how many patients and how many centers were involved in the study? Sure. So thank you, Jeff. So uh, I think a little bit of history would be helpful here. There have been previous studies that have looked at the role of IgG food testing in patients with IBS. And one of the things that distinguishes this test 
versus previously studied tests is that this one has been validated in groups of IBS patients, whereas previous studies really weren't. So what was done to validate this test was to first take it in several different cohorts of IBS patients as well as in controls and to find the foods that were higher levels of IgG in IBS patients compared to what were considered to be the general population or control uh, individuals. So they were initially, with the first cohort, we were able to identify about 90 foods that seemed to be higher in, in that cohort of IBS that was rerun in the second cohort and gone through more statistical testing and narrowed it down to about 50 foods. And from there, it was narrowed down even further based on foods that were commonly ingested by people with IBS and those that were sometimes reported to be um, associated with IBS symptoms as well. And that came eventually to a panel of about 18 uh, different foods. So again, to reemphasize that in with this test, that that the that the normal values were based are based on healthy a healthy population. So when someone has an elevated level, it is beyond the 95% confidence interval of the general population, or at least the population that has been that has been tested uh, with this antibody test. So that's very different than most of the other uh, panels that have been out there uh, for IgG. So um, and you asked about the the current study that we did. Well, this is a real this is essentially a phase two uh, study. What that really means is we're really just trying to learn about the test, how well it functions and to evaluate the endpoints that may be valuable in assessing symptoms in a diet-type study. So this was done in conjunction with the FDA. And at the end of the day, there were uh, a number of centers. So we ended up uh, having eight centers, six did most of the uh, tests, most of the patients uh, in the, uh, that were uh, enrolled in the study. And we had a fairly good balance between IBS-C, um, D, and IBS-M. Uh, subgroups of, of patients. And at the end of the day, uh, we had over 500 people that were evaluated, um, but they had to meet our inclusion exclusion criteria. So importantly, they had to have at least one of the um, antibody tests that were positive uh, to be enrolled in the study. And they had to ingest that food on a regular basis. So it couldn't be that they were positive to food that they just don't have part of their diet. Um, so that was important. So it whittled down at the end of the day, about 230 uh, patients that ended up entering into the into the study. Well, thank you. That was you know really interesting. We'll we'll get into the breakdown of uh, C, M, and D a little bit later. But Dr. Chang, I want to ask you that you know the study around in foods IBS looked at key benchmarks such as reduction in abdominal pain, bloating, IBS adequate relief, and IBS severity scoring system. What did the study show on meeting these metrics in a clinically significant way? Well, the primary endpoint of the study was a endpoint for abdominal pain. Um, and the endpoint is used by the FDA and other regulatory agencies for IBS studies, which is a an at least 30% reduction in abdominal pain on a scale of 0 to 10, a 0 being no pain, 10 being the worst imaginable pain compared to baseline. Uh, and what I think was very smart about this study was they used that improvement in abdominal pain in the latter part of the study of the diet, since it's a two-month um, diet study uh, intervention, uh, because some patients are not 
probably you may not be able to see the benefit of diet until a little later on and not so initially. So did the so the patients um that were on the diet for in foods, the IgG uh for tolerance, the, that group did have a increased uh, proportion of individuals who met that endpoint for abdominal pain improvement and response compared to the sham diet group. Uh, there's also evidence in the overall IBS population that they had improvement of global symptoms, so their overall symptoms. So it's kind of a combination of symptoms uh, uh, compared to the sham diet group. Uh, there was more of trends with the uh, bloating and, and, other, and abdominal pain intensity. Um, and uh, the IBSSS, which is the very commonly used IBS symptom severity uh, score measure, did not show a difference between groups. Really interesting. Well, either of you can probably answer this. We we had a conversation about this before, but in terms of, you know, the study was divided into diarrhea, constipation, and mixed predominant groups. Was there one group that did better than the other? And do we understand why one group might have done better than the other? When you look at IBSC and IBS mixed, you see a fairly large um, improvement. You know, we generally like to see a 10% improvement over uh, over uh, the sham group. And there we would see close to a 30%, if not more, improvement in IBSC and IBSM. It's important, though, to remember that this is a, a relatively small study. So when we talk about these large improvements in subgroups, these are subgroups, and you know, there are about 30 patients uh, in, each of the, in each of the arms in the subgroup. So it's relatively small, um, but that's where most of the improvement was seen. It's, it's surprising. Um in terms of the the diarrhea predominant didn't really have the response that we would have necessarily thought they might have uh, and it may have been also by the the panel of foods that were actually chosen as well um, to look at in terms of whether they had symptoms related to those um i don't know how to read into that uh dr chang do you have any thoughts about that well the fact that it improved abdominal pain is the is a common symptom of all the subtypes and I, I just think naturally we feel that there's more meal-related symptoms in the IBS diarrhea subtype, but there, there's meal-related symptoms in all the different patients. But it is interesting that it, it probably didn't make as much effect, and I don't know this for the fact, on the stool form as much, but it definitely helped abdominal pain. Um, and I, I don't know the reasons for that. It, it is interesting. But this is obviously, to me, a different mechanism than the low foot, the 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 um the path that you're thinking for the low FODMAP, it probably is not the same type of mechanism of action with these collection of foods that are not necessarily high FOD. So it's a different uh, way of that somehow these foods are generating this immune response uh, that doesn't mean that it has to be related to faster transit or stool form, but getting more in, in pain. But you know, IBS-C and IBS-D patients do have a little bit of a different type of pain response, right? Because in IBS-D, the pain is very related um, at least my recollection from studies to the bowel habits, where the where the pain in IBSC is not necessarily related to the bowel habits. They can still have pain. That it's not necessarily significantly improved uh, when you have a bowel movement. It's different, and 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 so you know it's obviously not just related to bowel habit to me or transit time. That's what I would. That's what I would think. Well, it le that leads nicely into the next question, actually. So. One of the things I say is I can read all of the, the studies. I don't have the clinical experience. And so I don't really know, you know, what's significant. 
Um, so it, this showed, you know, true significant decrease in average pain intensity scores on the true diet over the eight week time frame versus a sham diet. Would you expect, I mean, we're just kind of hypothesizing here, but if we actually tried this on a number of, you know, your patients, would you expect to see similar results, even though that you had such a, you know, small study arms uh, of only 30 patients? Do you have any ideas? Well, I mean, Jeff, we, we obviously don't know that uh, for sure, because the studies are very different than in real world, but they do give us a glimpse into how people would probably do um, in in the real world. But it's going to it's very different because in the real world, you're adding and decreasing um, medications and they're doing a variety of different uh, uh, treatments at the same time. So it's, it's not entirely clear. Um, but one, one important point that I, I wanted to make uh, on this is that so on average, uh, patients had five foods. They were positive to five foods that were removed from their diet. So that, as Lynn mentioned, this is kind of different than the low FODMAP diet, where there's you know numerous foods from five different major groups, but there's large amounts of food. So there's a major shift in the type of foods that you're eating. Um, and that's not the case with with this type of diet, where it's really kind of specific. And again, on average, five, which means some are less and some are more of uh, the foods. And, and so it's much smaller um, amounts. And, and of course, in the real world, we don't know how people are going to substitute uh, the foods that are eliminated or removed because people tend to eat about the same amount of calories. And so you'll usually substitute it with something different, maybe in the same class, but it might be in a different class because they won't be necessarily instructed. So it's not, you know, food, it, diet can be incredibly complicated. Um, but I do think that uh, this this could be helpful because it's very targeted, um, relatively easy to follow. And patients, if they give it eight weeks, can sort of can see if it's going to have improvement. And that would be a lot easier than removing you know a tremendous amount of foods like in the low part, man. I think it makes a, it makes an important point of, and I tried to do this in practice, and I'm sure other providers do, is that when you're going to do a treatment intervention, you try to do one thing at a time. Um, if you're if you're doing a combination of different treatments, it makes it more challenging to understand uh, if the treatment is actually efficacious or if there's any safety issue with a treatment. Now, of course, when we're seeing a patient, we're also instilling some therapeutic benefit by giving them education or reassurance. But you don't want to start a diet and a, and a like pharmacotherapy, a medication at the same time. Then, then it's going to be hard to tease apart if something's efficacious or not. The other point I want to make on the greater than 30% reduction abdominal pain in IBS with constipation, they have studies to show that that's a clinically meaningful endpoint. Uh, so the fact that you see the study, it means that when you see that in the patients, it's going to be meaningful to them. Tony, I don't know, have, has a similar type of analysis been done in the IBSD population where they find that the 30% reduction is clinically meaningful? Um, not that I know of. All right. So we did that with linaclotide with the 30%. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and Jeff, you know, the, the, when the flow FODMAP came out, uh, sort of the rationale behind it, as Lynn was saying, you'd sort of do one thing at a time, but the rationale there was that we as clinicians had been removing, for example, dairy or lactose from the diet and not seeing a tremendous improvement. Then we removed fructose from the diet. It was always done individually, but the rationale behind it was, hey, you should remove all of these things because the effects can be additive. Of course, we didn't know the actual mechanism on the inflammatory markers and other changes in the gut. 
But that was the rationale. So this is, again, a different rationale. This is really targeted and not meant to be an additive effect. So talk about low FODMAP. I mean, how many average foods were, were used in this particular study? The panel went, looked like about 10 different or 15 different foods? 18, there were 18 foods included okay. in, in the panel. And, you know, the, as I, we were mentioning earlier, you know, the most common ones were eggs, cow milk, wheat, uh, grapefruit, pineapple, sugarcane, cabbage. Those, those were like the top seven, orange, orange, corn, and lemon, you know, rounded out the top 10. And as you get further down, they tended to be a smaller numbers. Walnut was the least common, only 2% of people. So the, so the top 10 represented the majority. So to your point, Dr. Chang, it's a, it's a very different um, set of results that we're expecting because a lot of these foods actually perhaps could be high FODMAP. Uh, so it's a very different mechanism here, which is actually exciting that we're actually seeing how diet can um, you know, modify somebody's symptoms uh, in a different way because we're always I'm always thinking about, you know, law FODMAP, uh, whereas this is very this is quite different. So um you know, can I make a point though? Can I make a point sure. uh, before you go on to the next question? You know what I I guess I would be wondering, you had to have a positive test to one of the foods and you that you had to have been eating, you know, foods. You don't want to have a person that doesn't eat any of these 18 foods. But I'm wondering if the IBS diarrhea group tend to remove some of the foods because they see the association with their symptoms and the constipation group doesn't do that as much. They may stay away from cabbage or or try to eat more fiber, but it could be that you, you don't have it, you can't see as much of an effect because they've already partially treated themselves with some food elimination. They might have one positive food, but maybe removing the other ones didn't have as much of an additive effect. I mean, that's possible. I don't think IBS diarrhea and IBS constipation patients eat exactly the same type of food. I think they avoid different foods. That's a, that's a fascinating idea. We, in this study, they did do a three-day diary during the, you know, the baseline period. We did not, we have not looked to see uh, how the, their diets compare between the IBSD and IBSC. That would be a really interesting thing to look at. That's a very good observation, actually. I mean, I'm just looking at it from, from my perspective. So I, I started off as an IBSD patient, and then as I got older, I moved into more mixed. And, and you're absolutely correct. I have kind of eliminated some foods because I, I know that they're going to be a problem. For instance, you know, foods high in fructose. I didn't know about FODMAP years ago, but I just removed it on my own. And so it's an interesting observation, actually. Um, I mean, look at caffeine. Patients with the diarrhea bowel habit type, they usually avoid it, right? Because it stimulates the colon. Or patients with constipation often want to drink caffeine because it helps them have a bowel movement. You know, that I mean, that's a very simple, but the, it just shows you the difference in what, what their, you know, their dietary intake could be. Oh, it's true. I, I often joke that people with uh, diarrhea predominant IBS want to have constipation and those with constipation want to have diarrhea. But actually, having kind of drifted between both, you really don't want either, to be honest. It's and I and worse. I and personally I do use caffeine as a as something to to move my bowel along. So I think we're all very familiar with these little tricks and, and actually may have you know come out in these results as well as to why diarrhea predominant had different results than the others. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. So I mean given you know this test if it becomes widely available, I mean, what might be a, a good indication for either a gastroenterologist or a primary care physician to even consider this test for their patients? Dr. Chang, can you comment on that? Well, it would really, dietary interventions would be better in, in patients who 
have meal related symptoms, which is like with 70 to 80% of IBS patients. So that's the vast majority. Uh, they also have to be interested in a dietary intervention. Some people are and some people aren't. I think most IBS patients like to modify their diet or control their diet, something that they can do more easily and not have to buy, you know, get a medication, for example. Uh, and then also, I think they have to look at that list of Met, uh, foods and make sure they feel that those foods could be potential culprits. If they don't eat these foods very much, then they may not be as interested in doing it. I don't know. Um, I guess it could still be a positive, even if they're not ingesting these foods for a long period of time. I don't know, but that might be. And then people who have more difficulty with modifying their diet from maybe a financially financial standpoint, um, I don't know if this really is going to make a difference like FODMAP. Low FODMAP, often it was more costly to be on a low FODMAP diet. Um, I don't know if that's the case for this, but that that's probably some of the things that I would be thinking about for testing a patient. Okay. Let me ask you one final question um, for either of you. So the data supports a multidisciplinary approach to care for patients. And you kind of just touched that actually, touched on that Dr. Chang with you know food. Um, how does this test build on that model? So really I'm thinking of Dr. Che's model where you're looking at all these different interventions where you've got a pharmacological, you have um, psychology involved and you have diet involved. I mean, does this test work into that as well? Could that play a role as part of this um, type of discipline? Either of you? Yeah, I think it does. Um, we, I think like a lot of places, we'll have this multidisciplinary approach. And this is uh, something that can be added to the dietary recommendations for patients. And I think Lynn laid it out really nicely of the of when it may be appropriate. Again, it's not appropriate for all patients, but those patients where it might be appropriate, um, this may be a, you know, a quicker way of figuring out which of the foods may be, may be a trigger for them. Um, and, and I certainly like it. We, we use a lot of diet now and a lot of uh, dietary advice and diet trials um, because if we can find it, uh, it, you know, it can really give them long-term relief without requiring medication use. So um, I think it's worth looking into in the appropriate patient. I mean, diet is often the first-line treatment, uh, first-line therapy and assessment. So this is something you probably do early on. I think the other way that this could be very helpful is, you know, a lot of the, what I tend to hear is that there could be some consistent food triggers, but very often what they'll say is certain foods will give them symptoms on certain days and other days they have no problem. So they get kind of confused. Is this really, uh, am I really intolerant to this uh, food? But if their symptoms are severe, they're going to eliminate it anyways, even if they might have some good days on the same uh, tr foods. And then there's some little bit of anticipatory concerns or worries when they when they eat foods. And so if they could be more sure on the foods that they definitely are more intolerant to, that could remove some of the symptom-related anxieties or concerns that patients have surrounding food. And that would be helpful from a behavioral standpoint. Uh, but I definitely think that diet is one component, and it's probably an earlier component but definitely some of the patients, particularly with more moderate, severe symptoms, they're usually going to need um, medica other medications or uh, brain gut behavior therapy just to round it out to have them really have a better, better control over their symptoms and to have a better quality of life and um, just uh, lower symptom burden. So I, I just think integrative approach is really helpful. This can help inform on that component of diet uh, for the patient, uh, which will be helpful. 
I think of somebody being diagnosed now versus, you know, 20 years ago when we really didn't have a lot of treatment options. There are a lot of treatment options. And, and this multidisciplinary, multidisciplinary approach actually is so helpful. And especially if patients, you know, buy into this, um, it, you know, it's just another tool in, in the toolbox to, to help patients. So, you know, thank you both for, for uh, putting this in, in words that we can all understand. It was a really interesting study and I uh, appreciate your time. So thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Stay subscribed for more bonus content and an all new episode of the Tuesday Night IBS podcast each month. Be sure to follow the conversation on our Twitter page at hashtag Tuesday Night IBS. We host live Twitter chats on the second Tuesday of each month at 7 p.m. Eastern Time with our monthly guests and encourage you to join in on the conversation. Find our latest webinars on our website at TuesdayNightIBS.com. In addition, check out both of our pages on Facebook and YouTube at Tuesday Night IBS and find video presentations provided monthly by our guest experts to further guide our learning and conversations about these important topics. See you next month.